I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford. Deirdre has the morning off. Uh, today, growth stocks bouncing back, near 2% gains here on the NASDAQ. DocuSign, Zscaler surging on results. Our investors trying to call a bottom here. We'll dive deeper into those numbers when Zscaler's Jay Childry joins us in just a couple of moments. Crypto's on the rise. FTX continuing its buying spree, this time taking a stake in SkyBridge. Is this a bear market bounce or the start of a real rally? And then Intel breaking ground on its chip plant in Ohio. We're going to go live on the ground there, John. A long-awaited day for that state and the company. Oh, for sure, Carl. But as you mentioned, we're going to start with that pair of earnings movers, DocuSign and Zscaler, both surging this morning. Pandemic favorites that fell out of favor for different reasons, but the guide is what's lifting both names today. DocuSign trying to engineer a turnaround. CEO Dan Springer stepped down in June. Chair Maggie Wilderotter taking the helm in an interim role. And then Zscaler, the guide for Q1 and full year 2023, significantly above estimates. And that comes in sharp contrast to fellow security company Okta, which reported not long ago had trouble with execution, particularly in sales, leading to slower growth forecasts. Right now, investors focused on the trajectory heading into the future call for, for both of these names. Security, uh, unlike kind of documents productivity, one of those have-to-have areas, and Zscaler keeps outperforming in that category. Billings up 57%. Yep. Uh, we've talked about security being basically an island, John, amidst uh, some of the other worries about a large consumer spend although and enterprise spend. But I do wonder if, if maybe the conversation is going to pivot back to the weakness, the, the hand-wringing that we got initially from ServiceNow and some other big players was more about seasonality or if there are uh, external factors at play, Ukraine, right, uh, policy, energy security in Europe, things like that. Yeah, it's partly got to do with what has been expected for a given stock, the multiple where it's traded, and then partly how much are they exposed internationally? How much are currencies going to come into play? The strength of the dollar for some of these names. And then we're talking about security versus some other things. Uh, are, are these companies affected by headcount slowdown or are they just protecting the entire uh, you know, enterprise uh, jewel hoard where no matter how many employees you've got, or what's your growth rate you still need to spend, for example, on security? Yeah, uh, we'll watch that. Pretty interesting day shaping up here, at least in tech. For more on the stocks and the growth trade, let's bring in our CNBC senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, who I'm sure already knows that if we get a win on the NASDAQ today, Mike, we haven't done three in a row in a couple of months. Yes, uh, you know, these streaks come back to back, so you, you are breaking a little bit higher. In fact, the S&P 500 kind of nosing above the lows of that Friday Jackson Hole uh, sell-off. So we'll see if that can hold. Uh, when it comes to the high-growth names that are now perking up, it seems to me still a name-by-name -name reclamation project. It's about, you know, cost and, 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 and essentially whether the franchises remain intact and whether they got too oversold and are, are just getting squeezed. Now, this is a one-year of, of Asana as well as DocuSign and Zscaler. So you'll see, you want to talk about whether, okay, there's some, some of these sort of uh, downtrends maybe tentatively have been broken. Maybe we're basing here. Now, Asana had a monster move, you know, into late last year. That's why it sort of flattens out the rest of them. But it just kind of scales it up to tell you that we're still talking about uh, stocks that have been essentially really 
beaten down to a degree where it's the only people who are still watching are either heavily short or they want to actually find individual names. I don't think this is a group that can come back to life in a broad way and it's going to lead the market. It's more about uh, kind of picking up the pieces of what was left from the massive sell-off. Taking a look at the equal-weighted NASDAQ 100, the equal-weighted S&P, and then the overall market-cap-weighted NASDAQ 100. It tells you uh, over three years a little bit of convergence here. So massive outperformance here, of course, by the big-cap NASDAQ 100, also by the average equal-weighted NASDAQ 100. And now, finally, uh, the, the typical NASDAQ 100 stock is aligned over three years with the broader S&P 500 equal weight. However, you still do have this big performance gap, and it's where, I keep pointing out, it's where the valuation premium, and if there's excess, that's where it sort of remains. It is in those large stocks. So, you know, you're seeing a day like today, the big cap NASDAQ stocks are doing a lot of the work for the index. That's going to happen mathematically on a rally day. I'm just not convinced that we're seeing a big swing back in this direction in terms of market leadership. That front, Mike, uh, Reuters has a piece out this morning basically arguing that a lot of internal factors, breadth, momentum, trading patterns suggested that the market has degraded, at least technically, uh, and that does raise concerns about its future path. You know, I guess it's a matter of what time frame that's occurred upon. You were still feeding off of, to some degree, the benefit of the doubt that was built up by the strength of the, the June rally. The fact that we didn't have to go back down to those levels to really generate some of the, some of the oversold extremes that we did recently. A lot of this is really short term. We're in a four-month trading range. That range is not actually particularly wide. It's basically 4,300 to 3,600 on the S&P 500. And most of that time has been spent in the middle zone of that range. So uh, I would say that, yeah, on a short-term basis, well, we're feeding off, again, a little bit uh, of the uh, overdone selling that we got and the fact that sentiment got pretty uh, pretty nasty in the last week or so. We'll see how long it uh, can carry us higher. Right. Uh, yeah, appalling, I think, was the word that B of A used yeah. and to talk about flows in the week that ended on September 7th. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Mike. Mike Santoli. Uh, when it comes to investing in tech, our next guest thinks that with semis, uh, the inventories there rising, IT earnings estimates getting cut, might be time to turn to cybersecurity and enterprise software for the long term. Joining us today, BMO Wealth Management Chief Investment Strategist, Young Yuma. It's great to have you back. You, you do point out that some of these elements of inventories in tech, the idea that maybe we're at the beginning of some uh, cuts to estimates, provide reason to be cautious, right? There's certainly reason to be cautious in certain areas of technology. Uh, technology is outperforming today, but if we look since the Jackson Hole speech in mid-August, uh, technology is underperformed. So that underperformance has really been concentrated in semis, hardware, and the more speculative names of technology. So we continue to think those are probably going to be the laggards, even though we see a little bit of outperformance today. Do you think that CPI next week um, presents challenges or opportunities for tech? Well, I think a lot of the bounce we've seen the past couple of days is based on optimism of the CPI numbers. Uh, I do think that inflation expectations have started to come down. We see that in break-even rates for tips. And I, I think the market is hoping that we get another good print for CPI, and that gives a bit of a lift to technology. Youngu, how are you filtering for quality in enterprise tech right now, particularly in software, whether it means growth rates or net revenue retention? What, what are you looking most closely at uh, in terms of metrics? 
probably growth rates, being able to hit their targets, maintain margins. I think all of those are key factors right now. We do think enterprise software broadly is going to hold up pretty well. We think IT spend uh, for, for corporations is still pretty stable given the tight labor market. It's pretty much top of the stack uh, expenditures for companies. But as you mentioned, cybersecurity is certainly at the top of that top. So uh, within that, there's certainly some variation. But we're looking for companies that uh, are are giving stable guidance, companies that are hitting their numbers and, and where we see the money continue to flow. So we think that enterprise software is still a stable place to be. Now, what about consumer exposure? I mean, for example, um, Apple has big consumer exposure, has big exposure to international markets, and yet it's held up pretty well because of the other things it has going for it. How are you sort of factoring in those types of exposure, perhaps companies with exposure to the PC market, given that the consumer has been showing some signs of weakness? Yeah, definitely the name of the game now is about end markets and what, it, what specific markets and products are, are, being, uh, are being utilized. And most of the consumer markets are pretty weak. Certainly uh, PCs uh, are weak, both for consumers, even enterprises showing some weakness. Uh, but Apple's a bit of a beast into its own. So it's difficult to lump that in with the overall consumer category, given the strong uh, products it has, the positive network externalities of, of people using more and more of their products. Uh, so we, we sort of separate Apple from the consumer space overall. Uh, but we do think that the consumer, by and large, uh, is, is pretty full of hardware. So we're still shying away from the PC sector. We think that has a ways to go before it actually uh, reaches bottom. That's interesting. I, I wonder, I mean, it's a, a little bit removed, but uh, there's a lot of commentary this morning about the impact that lower gas prices have had. Uh, B of A, for example, today argues it's definitely given some tailwind uh, to lodging and restaurants and airlines. It's even acted as an offset to the spike in utility costs. Is there any way to, does the consumer mindset on tech spend deserve a second look in light of what energy's done the last six months? Well, certainly budgets have been freed up a bit, so that's that's great to see. And and if we get better inflation numbers coming next week, I think that enthusiasm will continue. Uh, I, I still think during the pandemic, we had such a long time of consumers uh, buying gadgets and technology that there's probably still more of a glut to work through and more of a backlog. We're seeing a lot of inventory build for certain semiconductor companies as well. Uh, but again, it's about end markets. So if these semiconductor companies are selling into uh, factories, if they're selling into farm equipment, uh, if they're selling into to industry, uh, they're doing pretty well. If they're selling into uh, personal uh, uh, computing products, uh, they're much more challenged. So that still probably has a ways to go, even with the budgets being freed up a bit, given those uh, commodity prices coming down. Yeah, that's a great point. It's not always about stress at the household balance sheet level. Sometimes you just have enough of something and your <laughs> appetite is sated. Uh, we'll see what the, the next year brings. Thanks so much. Good to see you, Young Yuma. Thank you. Now we got a case study in some of the trends we were just talking about, particularly in cybersecurity. Let's focus on Zscaler. That stock still firmly in the green, up more than 19% after the company beat on estimates in the top and bottom lines. Also issuing a strong full-year forecast, CEO Jay Chowdhury joins us now in an exclusive interview. Uh, Jay, welcome. Uh, <laughs> you, you said you saw some deals taking longer to close, but you don't seem to have had much trouble closing a lot of deals still. Can you give us your, your sense of the overall marketplace and why you're confident that your sales organization is going to continue to execute? 
John, thank you for providing the opportunity to come back and join us. It is true that market is getting a little bit uncertain, so there's more caution out there. CIOs and CFOs are doing more scrutiny, but they still want to do things that help their business. And those things are making sure the business becomes more uh, aggressive, sorry, more agile and more competitive, and making sure they can reduce cost and simplify the infrastructure. Since Zscaler platform eliminates a lots of point products, legacy technologies like firewalls and VPNs, and increases cybersecurity. So we can make a strong business case to the CIO and CFO that we can help them. That's why even though there was a lot more scrutiny, we did quite well. We have a very strong go-to market machine and we have a great architecture, true zero trust platform. That's really what's helping us. I was talking last night at a dinner with uh, Aaron Levy of Box um, and uh, Dave Itacheria of MongoDB making exactly this point that there's a lot of replacement even in a slowdown that's going on. What are you finding are sort of the bases of that replacement? You're getting to it a bit, kind of switching out things that were perhaps coming from multiple vendors. How much of this is also driven by the tightness in the labor market, the difficulty in finding uh, highly skilled people to, to yes. monitor complex systems, wanting to switch in for things that are simpler to operate? Uh, it's both areas. In fact, when we look at justifying what businesses, what CIO should do, there's elimination of point products being one, there's a cost of operational cost reduction being two, and the risk of some cyber incident being three. Those are the three factors that are driving us. Enterprises have bought a lot of security boxes over the past years. In fact, one CISO talked to me, he said, I have an appliance fatigue, and he meant security appliance fatigue. I need to eliminate them. And the second factor is operational cost of running, managing, operating these old school appliances that are sitting on-premise is hard. Cloud, something that's natively meant for cloud is a lot easier. So a combination of the two helps us. A deal I talked about uh, during the earnings call with 145,000 employees, we eliminated about seven, eight different products from half a dozen vendors, and operational cost was a big part of it. And being able to do business in China securely uh, was a third part of it. So there are multiple factors that are bringing our solutions together. You know, uh, Wells said something about you guys the other day. They said the company was purpose-built for exactly this type of macro environment where budgets are tightening and companies are looking for ways to lower costs. Can you explain to viewers what, what exactly they mean? Why you? So in today's tight environment, budgets are tight but businesses still need to go on, so they need to be able to make sure their, the security and connectivity to application happens, and cyber must happen at the same time. Zscaler provides all three, while bringing simplicity and reduction of complexity. And, and think of the old school legacy cars, they're very complex. Think of the new electric car, that's very simple. When we say Zscaler is purpose-built, Zscaler built the zero trust architecture on a clean slate when I started this company 13, 14 years ago. The other vendors, the legacy vendors, are essentially trying to bolt on an electric engine on top of their traditional engines. It doesn't really work. 
it may do good demos. And that's really why, because of the architecture and because we have so many happy customers who actually talk to other customers. CIOs like to talk to CIOs. Mm -hmm. CISOs like to talk to CSCSOs. We have so many <laughs> happy case studies where the results are good, they're very proven. And well, a lot of our business happens that way. Jay, help me understand how this trend plays out even in the medium term, because similar to you know, zero trust, it was a, a phrase that we got familiar with a couple years back. Now I'm hearing a lot more about simplicity and I, I'm hearing from the likes of Arctic Wolf who are talking about concierge security, sort of having a workforce that sort of purpose uh, you know, tailors the security solution for a given client, but then also CrowdStrike talks about having a nimble platform where it's easy to, to try out various uh, security applications that a particular customer needs. Which of these trends do you think is really going to matter in this next generation environment? Because multiple companies are telling me they're purpose built for this era, but I'm trying to understand which trends are really going to drive adoption and lead to big wins. So first of all, cyber must be done right. Okay, and next, the architecture must be right. The architecture doesn't change all the time. Talking about electric car versus traditional, those architectural changes come after decades. And if you build the right architecture, you do better security. On top of that, if you really build for the cloud, you do bring simplicity. Think about trying to deploy Siebel systems versus Salesforce. Salesforce were, was purpose built for the cloud, easier to deploy than old stuff. Similarly, when Zscaler was built for the cloud, in the cloud, it is a lot easier to deploy and operate at the same time. So operational ease of use, right architecture combined, that delivers great cyber at reduced cost is what customers are looking for. Now, beyond that, do you really, if you simplify your operational um, cadence, life becomes easier. You, you don't need people to be watching and upgrading boxes and things. You need your IT experts, your security experts to be more strategic, to look for the kind of policies and compliance they should be doing, rather than doing some of the mundane tasks. And that's what Zscaler brings to the table to these enterprises. Right. A typical customer will say, Zscaler, once you got deployed, my operational overhead went down by 80%. So it came down to 20%. Those are a big, big, massive uh, savings and benefits. Yeah, savings important in this environment. Jay, thank you, CEO. John, thank CEO. you so much for the opportunity. See you soon. Great. Intel, meanwhile, breaking ground on two new chip fabs this morning, the company receiving billions in state and federal incentives. Christina Parsonevelis is on the ground in Ohio and spoke with Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger earlier this morning. Christina. Yeah, it's a $20 billion investment on two fabs right behind me that will focus on advanced technology. Uh, this comes at a time when Intel, we know, is trying to turn itself around. The stock is hovering near a 52-week low. It's down 20% since the CHIPS Act passed. You also have the company that's facing demand weakening, losing market share to AMD with data centers. But the... The CEO of Intel is promising to spend up to $100 billion on a ground here in Ohio. And 
this obviously the incentive uh, being incentivized by the fact that it is getting uh, state aid it's also getting uh, almost to the tune of six billion dollars that's what they're anticipating from the chips act and that's just for ohio if we talk about arizona though arizona intel is joining forces with brookfield asset management in a 30 billion dollar funding partnership the first of its kind so i asked intel ceo pat gelsinger just about that does he need to borrow money in order to expand listen in it's a lot of capital up front. Remember, you know, you know, by the time we build one of these modules, we're well over 10 billion and we've gotten zero revenue. It's equity financing, so it's a you know, very interesting model of financing that it doesn't hit my balance sheet as a debt uh, burden. So he's obviously acknowledging how expensive it is to build these fabs without getting any revenue up front. Intel will have to share uh, future Arizona revenue with Brookfield Asset Management. But today is about Ohio. And what we have just found out now is the president has arrived on the ground. That's why all of the, the people that were seated behind me have moved inside for security purposes. We were told we might lose the signal right now. But the president is expected to speak about the CHIPS Act, the implementation program. They're planning to give out the money by this spring. Spring, but they have to make sure that none of the companies will spend the investments elsewhere outside of the country, that they're not going to spend it on buybacks, that they're not going to spend it on dividends. Of course, they've got their work cut out with, for them, uh, given the fact that they want to give it out by this spring. Guys? Yeah, Christina, um, we're also talking to Intel CFO uh, not long ago uh, about inflation hitting their construction costs and the difficulty in finding a construction labor force out there in Ohio. I, I suspect they don't want to talk too much about that since they just need a couple shovels today, but uh, that, that is going to be a bit of a headache for them, won't it? Oh, excellent. Excellent point, John, because I not only asked that to Pat Gelsinger, but I also asked that to the governor of Ohio. I also asked that to the chief people officer of Intel earlier. And yes, they need to get 7,000 construction workers. They need to get 3,000 technicians slash engineers. So they are investing. Uh, they're making that announcement today, $17.7 million in educational programs in the Ohio area. They're going to be pairing up with schools. But if you think about the time frame, these fabs are supposed to go up in 2020. Intel CEO did say maybe that'll be 2026 because they were delayed. But nonetheless, that's a short time frame to find thousands of employees. They seem pretty confident, though, that they're going to do it and that with the technician level, you only need, according to them, a high school degree. Uh, so they're really just going to try to show their presence in the state in terms of getting people into a STEM research and STEM-related uh, fields. But yeah, no, it's, a, it's an excellent point and one that we have to consider. Where is the talent going to come from? That's going to be a conversation we're going to have continually as we try to reshore a lot of production. Uh, great for national security, uh, but where do the workers come from? Christina uh, Parts-Nevelos in Ohio today watching Intel. Huge story. Meantime, uh, pretty good action continues. Dow's up 300. S&P up almost 50 points. Just off a of session highs. Pretty good breadth this morning as well. About 8 to 1 upside. Tech checks just getting started. NASDAQ gainers there. Meantime, let's get a gut check on Amazon. Morgan Stanley calls the stock a top pick within advertising. It's also Morgan Stanley's top internet pick. The firm sees more than 30% upside from here, thanks to some improving retail profitability. They also expect Amazon's nearly $40 billion ad business to grow at a 22% rate in the next few years. Stock's still down on the year, but it's up nearly 15% in the last three months. Analysts behind that call is going to join us Monday, John. Highest level 
profitable, uh, at least so far this month. Also, Bernstein talks about higher ad margins, surcharges in the peak season, higher prime fees, arguing that EBIT leverage will return. Very interesting that Amazon's doing a more effective job getting into Google's house in digital advertising than it did into Apple's when it comes to digital devices. Apple continues uh, to execute with pretty strong margins. Uh, as we head to break, check out Bitcoin on Facebook's best week in about a month. We're going to tell you what's behind that move when Tech Check returns in just a moment. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Carl Quintanilla. We continue to watch the NASDAQ this morning, up more than 3.5% since Monday, up uh, one and three quarters percent today alone. It's uh, looking to break a three-week losing streak. Take a look at some names helping lead the index this morning. We mentioned DocuSign and Zscaler bouncing back in a big way. Atlassian uh, in there as well. CrowdStrike, which I mentioned earlier, keeps, keeps moving around. There's a lot of stuff moving higher. But first, before we get into more of that, let's get over to Contessa Brewer with a news update. Hi, Contessa. Hi there, John. Good to see you. King Charles III is set to make his first speech as Britain's monarch about 90 minutes from now. This morning, he arrived at Buckingham Palace, where he and the Queen Consort greeted well-wishers and looked at the many tributes that had been left there after the death of his mother, Queen Elizabeth. The Treasury is imposing new sanctions on Iran's intelligence ministry, accusing it of cyber attacks on the U.S. and its allies, including the disruption of Albanian computer systems in July. And these Chicago Bulls tickets won't get you into a game, but they could cost someone as much as $300,000. A pair of tickets to Michael Jordan's NBA debut in 1984 are being auctioned later this month. They cost, at the time, $1,150. They're being sold by a man who was in high school when he went to the game with his dad. He managed to pull them out of the drawer after he heard about another ticket, that one unused for the game, had sold for almost half a million dollars. I don't know what's more remarkable, that they would cost so much, Carl, or that they've been sitting in a drawer for what, 40 years, <laughs> almost? <laughs> Fed's got a hike. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Contessa, thanks, Contessa Brewer. Meantime, uh, crypto surging this morning after FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried agreed to acquire 30% of SkyBridge. Our Kate Rooney has more on the price action we're seeing and this continued buying spree from Sam. Morning, Kate. Hey there, Carl. Yeah, crypto getting a little bit of relief to end this week following broader markets higher this morning. Bitcoin had been up as much as 10% after hitting a three-month low just a couple days ago. It's been particularly sensitive to the rising U.S. dollar in recent months. You can see that inverse correlation on the chart there really picking up in May or so. And another factor this week, there's been a strong uptick in short liquidations. The past day or so, about $343 million worth of crypto shorts closed out their positions. Uh, that's the largest level in more than a month, according to Glassnode, or excuse me, CoinGlass data there. That often sparks some of these jumps we see in prices. And while it may not be driving Bitcoin's price, the big industry news of the day, Sam Bankman-Fried's latest bet in the space, the venture arm of FTX buying a 30% stake in Anthony Scaramucci's Skybridge Capital. It comes after Skybridge had gated some redemptions Earlier this year, as the prices of cryptocurrencies crashed, it's still less than 8% of the firm's assets in that crypto fund. And as far as the deal details here, $40 million of the roughly $50 million stake is going to go into Skybridge's balance sheet directly to buy more crypto, which Scaramucci told CNBC earlier is already underway. It adds to Bankman-Fried's growing empire. He's provided multiple bailouts this year to BlockFi and Voyager. He also founded Alameda Research 
as well as a personal stake in Robinhood. Bankman-Fried telling Squawk Box earlier this morning that it was about merging digital assets and traditional Wall Street. Bankman-Fried has really been moving further into traditional equities lately. FTX U.S., for example, has launched stock trading. And then finally, guys, the deal really builds on this conference relationship that these two have built. Skybridge owns Salt, and then Salt and FTX teamed up for a conference in the Bahamas earlier this year. We'll see if that continues. Back to you. A lot going on this week in the crypto space, Kate. Um, just a few days ago, you had this Bitcoin mining pool um, pool in freezing withdrawals because of liquidity issues. And that kind of confuses me given that uh, crypto is having a pretty good week. So beneath the surface, what are some of the liquidity challenges that continue to happen? It's interesting. We saw that huge wave of liquidations and liquidity issues play out earlier in the spring that really dragged down crypto prices. Right now, the biggest driver of Bitcoin in particular and crypto in general seems to really be macro news, things like the dollar, things like the Fed. And then you do have these company-specific liquidation issues, that they're running into issues. And that seems to be, at this point, from what I'm hearing, very company-specific, not having those really broad contagion effects that we saw that really were an issue for the industry. We have seen that shake out for the most part as far as the effect on prices. Right now, there are definitely issues out there, and I'm told there will likely be more failures to come as companies, A, can't raise as much venture capital money, and then just run into these issues as prices have come down and and retail demand. So you're right, there are still issues out there, but we're seeing a little bit less of a broader contagion issue than at least we did a couple months ago. Yeah, you know, it's funny, you know, we just got, we just wrapped up a few days out at Code, Kate, and as you know, uh, the likes of Mark Cuban had comments, and it's, it sort of actually points to the price action, and that is, um, it's not dead money, right? There are things that are interesting uh, down the road, but in Cuban's view, at least, it's still early. So that sort of supports this idea that, you know, it's not necessarily a huge downside argument, but maybe not the fuel for a huge upside rip either. Yeah, that's a great point. Great week at Code, by the way, guys. Fun to watch. Uh, but as far as the crypto analogy, so many people that live through the dot-com era love to compare it to that and say maybe 1% of these bets are going to work. And every company wants to point to Amazon and say, yeah, well, Amazon made it out of, of the dot-com boom and bust. And not every company can be Amazon. But it seems like there's been so much optimism and hype around this that every founder has to go in with the belief and say, no, we are the Amazon. We're the ones that are going to make it out of this. But at this point, you just can't imagine that every company, any, every NFT company that we've seen or project is going to make it out here. And I think it's still very early, not to mention consumers are a little bit more worried. Not to, a lot of them are underwater just on Bitcoin prices, which are seen as the least risky in this asset class. You've got to wait for consumer demand and excitement to come back, I think, to, to justify some of those valuations. All right, Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney. We're going to have a lot more on the move you're seeing in Bitcoin and Ether tonight. Make sure to tune in to Superman's least favorite program, but it's great. The CNBC special, Crypto Night in America, that starts at 6 p.m. Eastern. We'll be right back. Let's turn to the broader M&A landscape. Our next guest thinks we could see an uptick in consolidation over the month ahead, keeping an eye on some targets across SaaS and healthcare IT. Joining us this morning on set, we're pleased to have Union Square Advisors co-founder and president Ted Smith, Ted, welcome back. Great to see you. Thanks, Carl. Thanks um, for having me. I, I was thinking it's it's kind of easy to convince yourself that nothing's happening because <laughs> right. uh, the headlines make you feel that way. Right. But you argue that the data doesn't back it up. No, we're certainly down from last year off by about a third from where we were in 2021. But it's still been a very busy environment out there. 
Uh, very active across private equity, who, who continue to do a lot of deals because things are a little cheaper now. Uh, and large corporate buyers are still very active as well. So we saw August be twice as busy in terms of deal volume as we saw in July. So we, we think the rest of this year actually could continue to be pretty busy. So stair step into Q4 and then right. and then early 23? Is that rollover? It, it should, right? One of the things that happens in an environment like this is that it takes a while for deals to get done, it takes a little longer. So yes, things that get started now clearly are going to be Q1 deals unless they really run fast. So we think at least into Q1 we'll see that busyness, and then you know we'll hope for the best in the back half of 2020. We mentioned SaaS and, and and healthcare. What's special about those two verticals right now? Well, I think on the SaaS side in general, what we've seen through the pandemic is just how resilient SaaS software providers are with their subscription models. Um, if you're an enterprise company that's betting how you run your business on a piece of software. You're not gonna unplug that until the very last. You'll pay for your utilities, your rent, your people, and then what you pay to run your business on. That is going to continue. It's gonna be very hard to disconnect from those SaaS companies. On the healthcare side, obviously we've got a lot of work to do in this country with our healthcare system. And as technology and artificial intelligence helps us be better at that, you're gonna see ongoing investments in that sector. Ted, are we gonna see more, uh, I guess, arranged marriages uh, in M&A? And by that I mean, this week, we had the announcement of Misfits Market acquiring Imperfect Foods. Not traditional tech, but it's certainly uh, tech driving a change in the, the food and grocery ecosystem. And yeah, Imperfect Foods had been around for longer than Misfit, but Misfits was arguably better operationally, which led for it to be the acquirer. So do you expect to see more deals like that where perhaps a company can't get more funding to compete but gets told, hey, you, you really need to pair up? We do see that, John. I think it's a great question. We see a lot of non-tech or non-traditional buyers eyeing the tech sector. Again, things are a little cheaper now than they were six to 12 months ago. So opportunities to focus on um, improving those operational side of the business for tech businesses that may have not grown into their full scale yet and to really augment what the, uh, what, the enter what the buyer is able to do through having an increased exposure to tech. So yes, we think we'll see more of that. One thing that still gets a lot of commentary is cross-border, just because of geopol obvious geopolitical tensions. Is right. that a real headwind? I think it is in, in the sense that I think it's still difficult to do deals with certain parts of the world, China in particular, Russia these days, obviously. Um, but I also think that with the strength of the dollar, which we've seen and you've talked about a lot on these shows, um, we, if you have a dollar-denominated fund, you know, the world's your oyster right now, right? Things are cheaper, so you'll probably go on a little bit of a shopping spree. Right. Um, the other thing, you mentioned healthcare. The Journal's got a piece out. I think the headline reads something like, Dr. Amazon will see you now. And Andy Jassy talked a lot about the potential for it to be uh, another huge pillar in the company's overall strategy. We obviously know about uh, One Medical. Um, his argument is that the, the customer experience, which sort of drives a lot of Amazon's thinking, needs to be reinvented in healthcare, and you just sort of alluded to it just now. I think that's right, and look, never bet against Amazon in terms of reinventing that customer experience. They've been so good at it for so long. It is one of the rare areas where they have stubbed their toe a little bit in some of their prior ventures, so the fact that they're coming back with one medical, not unlike Whole Foods, and saying, let's come at this from a different angle uh, and really try to do this a little bit differently than the first couple of times around, shows that they're very focused on just how big that market is and the opportunity for, that they have. Finally, um, hardware? We've had daily discussions about the challenges in inventory right. and, and uh, pull forwards from COVID. How do you think that, that normalizes? Maybe, maybe it's beyond 23. Uh, it's certainly well into 23 as that long tail finally you know, smooths, things, smooths things out a little bit. 
Um, we think it's much better to be exposed to software than hardware, quite, quite frankly, just because it's a lot easier to sell ones and zeros than in those physical goods that are piled up on the dock. Yeah, uh, that's, that's going to be with us for a while, it seems. Yeah. Really good color, though, on, yeah. on the space, and we can't wait to get to the next couple quarters. Yeah, uh, thanks. neither can we. Thanks, Carl. <laughs> Now as we have to break, check out shares of T-Mobile reversing earlier gains, announcing plans for a 14 billion share buyback program that's going to run through September of next year. The stock, a massive winner in 2022 so far, up more than 25%, about flat for the day right now. Stay with us. Live from one of the biggest tech events of the year, Vox Media's Code Conference here in Los Angeles. Tara Swisher and what she's calling her final, at least, code as host. You're definitely making a statement with the lineup this yes, year. Yes, I am. Amazon CEO Andy Jassy. Apple's Tim Cook, Johnny Ive, Lorreen Powell Jobs. As Sundar Pichai said here at Code. Competition comes from nowhere. You know, none of us were talking about TikTok three years ago. Mm -hmm. I have to ask about TikTok. That is the company that everyone has been talking about. Tremendous threat. Advertisers love them. There are lots of risks. Where is that data? Where does it go? We try to put the user in the driver's seat to own their data. So much of what Tim Cook Apple is able to do, I think, is put together ingredients that Steve Jobs himself didn't have. A lot of the questions were, what would Steve think? Particularly around privacy, where Steve famously said, you gotta ask, ask again, ask a third time. Fascinating look, though, at the ways in which companies are looking at costs. We made the decision that we would err on the side of building more. If we were higher than we needed, that we'd eventually grow into that footprint. Let's talk to a major investor in growth tech. We've seen in the public markets a move from growth at all costs to actually need to focus on profit. It's not like last year when folks that had three years of runway are out raising huge rounds because the market was so nuts. Now there's a situation where Netflix and Disney are really going head to head. I don't think all streamers are created equal. I do not believe all streamers that are in it today will survive. Snaps Evan Spiegel. When you have inflation running this hot, people know that the paths forward are really difficult. What can tech do that's good? They can help solve some problems. I thought Mark Cuban talked about that rather eloquently. Healthcare in this country is f***ed up and, and the pricing for medications is even worse. Here's a way for us to change a huge problem and make people's lives better. Aviators on always, right? I can't believe Ray-Ban is partnering with Facebook and not Kara Swisher, <laughs> but that's okay, whatever. One of our favorite times of the year. Carl, that's a wrap from Code. It's been a busy few days. It's not over. World domination yeah. is next. <laughs> That was Code 22. Uh, John, you and Dee are headed to Goldman's Communicopia next week. I was thinking about code narratives this year, John. Obviously, cost discipline was one, um, revisiting business models and valuations. And then I would argue a fair amount of anxiety, especially in media. And that's what Iger really got to. Yeah, anxiety, though, not, I imagine, on the same level as last year when there was a question of whether there would be any gathering at all. I mean, it, it's interesting. I think there's always a great feel of what's coming next uh, at code, just kind of in the general zeitgeist. Uh, we've got Goldman next week, Communicopia plus tech this time. So it's not just uh, about communications and media, it's also about tech and enterprise tech and to talk to a number of leaders there. And I expect to get a more granular look at some of the, the, the Z-scaler uh, type drivers that we've been talking about on the program today, Carl. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, a big part of the conversation, I think, was uh, legacy from COVID. It was nice to finally have a conference where you weren't constantly thinking about personal safety or social distance. And I wonder if you think um, the ability for all of us collectively to get out of that period and reset 
is going to feed optimism about other things we can tackle down the road. I think it will indeed, and I think it's making these points of gathering more special, more intentional, right? It's not, we're not content to live in a Zoom-only situation, and, and so when we have the opportunity to actually break bread, to meet face-to-face, there's a real potential for, to get real work done. So we're going to try to do that, continue to do that, as you did this week, do it next week as well, Carl. Yeah, that's fantastic, especially given that September is such an important month uh, for conference season. Coming up after the break, uh, lawmakers warning Apple about the new Chinese chips in iPhones. Details on that coming up. Some of the people and organizations, as usual, using the Apple event this week to put themselves in the headlines. Apple announced this week they are partnering with GlobalStar to help iPhone and Apple Watch users connect to emergency services via satellite when cellular reception is unavailable. Elon Musk took the opportunity to tweet that his company's Starlink satellite communications team has spoken with the iPhone maker about potentially using its services for a future project. And then... Following reports that Apple would consider adding a Chinese chip maker, Yangtze Memory Technologies, to its list of flash memory chip providers, Florida Senator Marco Rubio told the Financial Times that, quote, Apple is playing with fire, and if they move ahead, they, quote, would be subject to scrutiny like it is never seen from the federal government. Apple told the paper it's only considering using those chips within China and that all user data stored on the chips would be, quote, fully encrypted. Um, so, uh, Carl, uh, we'll see if we get uh, state oversight of iPhone assembly uh, in the U.S. Phones made for China. <laughs> well, I guess I'd say two things. They've been through the ringer before, uh, so it's hard to imagine you could actually surprise them. But it is a tightrope uh, that a lot of tech is walking as we try to decouple from a lot of Chinese manufacturing and surveillance. If you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere. Wherever you download podcasts, Tech Check is back in a moment. One more thing before we go, and that's Meta cutting down its responsible innovation team. The Journal reported the team had roughly two dozen engineers and ethicists who worked together with the internal products team. And while Meta continues to deal with misinformation on the platform, it's also dealing with the slowdown in ad spend and profits that are leading to cost cutting. A company spokesperson said Meta believed its safe and ethical product design resources were better spent on more issue-specific teams. John, a curiosity, I guess it's hard, it's hard to know how much money they're saving on this particular initiative. Well, uh, they have some headline risk, though. They're cutting this, heading into midterms, and just as uh, a lot of action is going to start gearing up for the general. So <laughs> maybe they should start talking about what they're doing to protect elections before people start connecting some dots that they don't want to connect, Carl. Right. Uh, next week, we're going to get Oracle and Adobe to off-cycle big software uh, reports, and that'll be uh, really informative. Uh, indeed, as we are now in the blackout window pretty much for Fed speak, as we get into uh, closer to a Fed meeting and obviously CPI, hard to overstate the importance of that print on Tuesday. Have a good weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.